What's the most incredible thing that you've ever seen? Perhaps it's something in nature, like Niagara Falls. Perhaps it was one of those one in a million occurrences, like a a hole in one that's totally unexpected, or a a lightning strike right next to you. In Exodus, we're presented with some truly incredible events. Events the like of which the earth has never seen uh, before, and will never see again in the same way. Events that are known all over the world and have been passed down from generation to generation to generation. God, here in Exodus, is about to effect the most elaborate escape for his people ever. But before that, before he gets them out, there are some absolutely huge plagues. And before that, we get in our passage a recap and a warm-up. Let me read to you verses 1 to 7 of chapter 7. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of the land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against the Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so, just as the Lord had commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron was 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Moses here sums up where we've got to, which is quite helpful if you're just joining us uh, in the series. But Aaron is going to speak for Moses, and Moses will speak for God. Aaron will be like his prophet, one who speaks on his behalf. They'll go and speak to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's not going to listen. God will harden Pharaoh's heart. His ears will be closed to their pleas. Even though God will perform miracles like the world has never seen, Pharaoh will deny their requests. And things will get worse and worse and worse for the Egyptians as we go through. And then, and only then, once Egypt has been utterly ruined by God, will he rescue his people. And then, verse 5, the Egyptians will know that the Lord is God, that he is the great I Am. That there is no one like him in all the earth. I do not know the Lord, said Pharaoh in the last section that we looked at. But the end of this passage, by the end of this section, he will. God will reveal himself to his creation, his character, his awesome power. And he'll also show the lengths that he's prepared to go to, to rescue his people. And he's going to do it by his chosen instruments. Two octogenarians. That's what he's going to do. Warriors with walking sticks. Fighters with false teeth. Saviors with stairlifts. Moses is 80 and Aaron is 83. It is not going to be the vigour of youth or the strength of man that is going to rescue them from the Egyptians. It will be the Lord God. And there will be no doubt whatsoever that it's him who has done this. And that's exactly what happens next. Moses and Aaron come before Pharaoh, and to prove themselves, they show off uh, their miracles, not their muscles. 
They show Pharaoh and his court a miracle that God has told them. Aaron casts down his staff on the floor and it becomes a snake. Now this was the miracle that convinced the Israelites that they really were sent from God. But even though it's the same miracle, Pharaoh is not convinced. His sorcerers, his magicians do the same. They cast down their staffs and they become snakes. Now people have suggested all sorts of things over the years. I've read some of them this week, you know, snakes that have been pre-frozen uh, to look like staffs and then in the heat of the sun, you know, sort of throw them down and they melt. You know, it could be sleight of hand, you know, just trying to do a bit of a magician's uh, trick. Uh, I mean, it could be those things. The word there, though, is secret arts that it uses for what they do all the way through this section. It translates two phrases. One means to flame and to burn. And the other means something that's secret or private or a mystery. So it needn't be that these are just conjuring tricks. Could be. But we need to remember that the devil is real. Actually, there are demonic forces in the world. The devil has power. And he certainly uses his power to deceive people. That's his normal way of doing things. That's his M.O. That would certainly match what is going on here. Pharaoh's being deceived. These people really are from God. But whatever powers the magicians are using, they don't match for God's power. The snake from Aaron's staff eats up the snakes from the other staffs. Their magic only goes so far, if you like. The devil, if it's that power, it is no match for God's power. Their tricks, if that's what they're doing, can't match the real thing. And Pharaoh sees this and his heart is hardened. Now at this point we're not told who does it. It just says that it's hardened. Here it's linked with him seeing the magician's magic. He's got an excuse now not to believe. In the first half of this uh, account, it's normally Pharaoh that's doing the hardening. Hardening his own heart. But now that the warm-up is done, now that Pharaoh has rejected what they're doing, it moves on to the plagues. We've had a sort of miniature uh, miracle thing there, but the plagues are coming now. Now, before we look at them in detail, it's worth thinking about them as a whole. Especially what the plagues are not, because there's lots of competing ideas, and I'm sure that you'll have heard lots of ideas uh, if you've been around in, in churches for a while. Firstly, I want to say the plagues are not aimed at specific Egyptian gods. Now, I've always been a bit sceptical about this when I've read it. Um, because I believe in the sufficiency of scripture, that we should be able to get a handle on what is going on, just from what we read in the Bible. Sometimes it's other places in the Bible, but we should be able to get an idea of what's going on. The Bible doesn't make a big deal of Egyptian gods. Canaanite gods, like Baal, Asherah, Dagon, yes, they're there in the Bible. But Ra, Isis, Osiris, never really mentioned. They're not made a big deal of. Now it's true that most of the plagues can be associated with a specific god in Egypt. But A, they're not the major gods actually, most of them. They're just sort of, there is a god that does this. And it's, sometimes it's the same one as we go through the ten. The second thing is that the Egyptians literally had a god for everything. So you know, if it had been a plague of cats, or turtles, or hippos, you can find an Egyptian god for that. That might be the case, it might be the case that it's sort of aimed at a specific god in number nine, rather sun god being their greatest god. But then again, the idea of darkness as a sort of judgment and a bad thing goes right back to Genesis 1. 
So it needn't necessarily be an Egyptian god. And God will use darkness as a sign of judgment against nations that don't worship the sun later on. It's also not right to think that they're just bare natural phenomena as we read the, uh, the plagues. I've read my fair share of articles and watched enough documentaries to know that there are all sorts of ideas about this, how this could have happened without God's intervention. You know, red silt deposits go into the Nile, which kills the fish and ejects the frogs, whose corpses attract mosquitoes and flies that spread disease, which kills the cattle and makes people ill. And then that time of year, there's sometimes hail, and that moves the locusts, and it causes a sandstorm, and it brings darkness. Now, it's true, isn't it, that God uses natural means to bring about his judgments. The locusts, for example, if you read the locust account later on, They don't just appear out of nowhere. God sends a wind which brings them from somewhere else. And then when he wants to get rid of them, he sends another wind which sends them away. God does use natural phenomena. But natural phenomena don't start and stop on demand. They don't let you pick the day when they stop. Again, Pharaoh gets to pick what day the the plagues are going to stop at points. Natural things just don't just affect Egyptians and not Israelites. Actually, they differentiate all the way through. They don't announce themselves through prophets before they happen. And they don't start off with someone throwing soot in the air, or holding out their staff, or holding up their hands. Which, if you read the accounts, that's how these things start. Anybody looking at this objectively, anybody looking at this without, without an agenda, would conclude that this is God that is doing this. The magicians themselves, in the account, admit that God is doing this in the end. But we're getting ahead of ourselves there. But it's not aimed at the gods, it's not just natural phenomena. God is bringing this. He's bringing this judgment on the people. And what we see is three waves of woe. Three waves of woe. The nine plagues that we have that follow in our passage come in three big sets of three. Three waves of sort of three. So you might not be able to see that at the back. But you can see there's a sort of pattern as you go through that links uh, them in threes as you go through. There's a sort of pattern that goes through. Each wave begins with Moses going to Pharaoh in the morning and ends with a statement about the magicians or Moses. It's going to show you that really you can look at patterns between uh, the three of them. We call them plagues, but actually the word plague isn't used until chapter 9, where unsurprisingly it's used about a plague, as we understand the word as a plague and illness. Instead, the word that's used here again and again in the Hebrew is the word for strike, a blow, a punch, if you like. Even in 8.2, chapter 8, verse 2, where the ESV has plagued your lands, it's actually strike your lands. So what we have here is three waves of three strikes, blows to the land of Egypt and to Pharaoh. The first wave is blood, frogs, and gnats. Now I'm not going to read all this, so have a look uh, there uh, as we go through. Uh, it's uh, there in chapter 7, uh, but I won't be able to read it all, otherwise we'll be here all morning. But first of all, God strikes the Nile. The Nile was the instrument of death against God's people, if you think about it, going back with the baby boys being drowned there. And perhaps this is a not-too-subtle reminder that the pharaohs have Hebrew blood on their hands. 
It would equally have been a miracle to make the Nile dry up, wouldn't it? Or, or to turn it to sand or to something else. But he turns it to blood, as though it's a reminder of what they've done. It points to their guilt. Interestingly, when Jesus comes, he turns water to wine. Same sort of miracle, same colours even, very different meaning. It's as though there's a different thing happening. But again, uh, it's like a, a warm-up, and like in the warm-up, sorry, the magicians are able to copy this miracle by their secret arts. It's worth noting, though, that they can only make things worse. As you read through them with the magicians, all they can do is make it worse. They add more blood. A real miracle, really showing that they have power, would be, be able to turn the blood back into water. That would actually show that they had more power, wouldn't it? But all they can do is turn a bit more water into blood. All they can do is a pale imitation. And Pharaoh's heart, though, well, it believes it. It's hardened. He doesn't have to believe. He doesn't have to listen because the magicians have shown him that it's okay. So on to strike two. The second strike is frogs. Now the river Nile is again employed in judgment as it skews out a plague of frogs. And they're there in your personal space in, in 8, 3 and 4. They're there in your ovens. They're there in your beds. They're, they're there everywhere. I can only imagine sort of getting into bed and sort of pulling it back and having loads of frogs in there. It must be very nice. There is no escape from this judgment. There is nowhere they can go from uh, away from these frogs. And again, the magicians replicate this miracle. But again, the way that they do it is they make more frogs. Now, I have no idea how they did that. Um, but the real power, again, would have been getting rid of the frogs. But all they can do is make more. But it's enough to convince, easily convince Pharaoh. But Pharaoh, this time, asked Moses and Aaron to plead with the Lord to take them away. Moses asked Pharaoh what time they should leave. And Pharaoh says, tomorrow. I think I would have said today. I do it now. But he says, tomorrow. And sure enough, it happens that day. But when he sees that it's all over, he hardens his heart and will not listen to them. The final strike in round one is gnats. Now the word there in Hebrew is ken. And it literally means something that attaches itself to you. It's a tricky word to translate. The, the biggest candidates are gnats, lice, midges and mosquitoes. I don't like any of those options, personally. Whatever it is, it was not very pleasant. If frogs can get everywhere in your home, imagine what about lice and mosquitoes and that way they can get all over your body, can't they? You ever been camping with midges? And you sort of come back and you, how did they get out of there by there? It's just incredible. Imagine them everywhere, at home, at work, at school, at church, in bed. And now the magicians can't repeat it. Have a look at verse 8, uh, chapter 8, verse 19. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Now this is what makes me think that this is not just conjuring tricks. Because I think I could magic up a gnat a lot easier than I could magic up a frog. Do not think? Gnats, really, it seemed quite simple. But the magicians are unable. Three blows and they're out. And they tell Pharaoh, don't they? They don't keep it to themselves. But by this point, Pharaoh won't listen. His heart was hardened by Pharaoh. 
uh, by God, we're not told, but here it, it means he's not even listening to his own people now. It means Pharaoh won't even listen to the experts, so to speak. Originally, they were his justification for not believing, if you think about it, and now they're telling him something else, but he wants to keep on believing what he's believing, so he no longer listens to the experts. Amazing how that still happens, doesn't it? That people listen to the experts, but then suddenly when the experts disagree, it's like we don't want to listen to them anymore. We'd rather keep on believing what we want to believe. The first wave, though, shows us, as well, though, that miracles don't guarantee truth. <laughs> we live in a world with supernatural forces. God is not the only one who can do miracles. Jesus himself spoke of this, Matthew 24, 24. It's on the back of your notice sheets. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. In Revelation, there are beasts and false prophets who can perform signs and wonders. And here we see the magicians performing signs and wonders. So miracles are no guarantee of truth. So beware of people with flashy signs and flimsy theology. Paul warns Timothy about uh, these people in 2 Timothy 3. He specifically mentions the Egyptians uh, and the magicians. He calls them Janus and Jombris, which was the traditional name. And he compares them with the false teachers of his day. And he says they have an appearance of godliness, but deny its power. They look like the real deal, but in the end, they can't go the distance. In the end, they're found out. Like the magicians, they can only do so much. And in Paul and Timothy's case, they can produce miracles, but they can't produce godliness. They can't actually do what God is doing in their life. Anyway, that was wave one, and beware of people who uh, uh, have miracles but not the right theology. Wave two is flies, beasts, and boils. The next strike is literally a, a swarm. We said flies there, but the word flies isn't actually used. It can just mean an intermingled mass, uh, but it's likely to be sort of flies or different insects. This is one where we now start to find out that none of the people in the land uh, that the Israelites lived in have to go through this. This plague is exclusively on the Egyptians. And in verse 24, we're told that it ruins them. Pharaoh tries to bargain with Moses now. He's starting to see that this is going wrong. Yes, you can hold the festival, but you need to do it inside Egypt. You need to stay inside. But Moses is having none of it. And Pharaoh agrees for them to leave. If only Moses will pray to stop these flies, these insects. Well, Moses does pray. And the plague does stop. But Pharaoh hardens his heart again and won't let them go. The next strike is uh, death of livestock. And again, God makes a distinction and doesn't kill the livestock of his people. Pharaoh's heart is hardened and he doesn't let them go. The last strike is a wave of boils and sores. Boils and sores on man, woman and beast. Though again, only the Egyptians are mentioned in verse 11, implying that the Israelites don't have to go uh, through this. They come from Moses throwing soot from a kiln into the air in front of Pharaoh. Again, a sign that this is supernatural, not just a natural occurrence. And the way it ends with the magicians not being able to stand before Moses. Last time they, the Pharaoh just wouldn't listen to them. Now they're not even able to go there. And the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart now. 
and the last wave begins. Wave three, hail, locusts, and darkness. The last wave starts with hail. This is the reading that we had earlier. Here we get an extended explanation of what God is doing. He's revealing himself in verses 13 to 17 of chapter 9. He's showing them who he is. He's going to stand against Pharaoh and give them such signs that they will know that he is Lord. He tells them that he's raised up Pharaoh to show his power. And again, we said last week, didn't we, that Pharaoh had turned around straight away and said, all right then, uh, you know, you've shown me that miracle with the snake, right, you can go. We'd never have heard of the Exodus, would we? We'd never know what God could do. But God is at work here to show his incredible power, to reveal himself to the world and to the Egyptians. So God sends hail. Hail like Egypt has never seen. Now you must have all seen those articles that you see, you know, God, oh, hail the size of golf balls fell out of the sky and you sort of dent your cars and all sorts of things, break windshields. I imagine that this was even worse. We're told the people outside died in this. But it's interesting here that God gives everybody a chance to respond. Anyone who fears the Lord can shelter in safety. They can bring in their possessions, they can bring in their cattle, if only they will listen to the Lord. If they fear the Lord and listen to his voice, his word, they need not face judgment. And verses 20 and 21 show us that people did do that. They did bring in their things. There were people even in Egypt who feared the Lord and listened to his voice. They did not have hard hearts. And we know that because they listened to God's word. All the way through, the hardness of Pharaoh's heart is shown by him not listening. Well, here, there are people listening. The same idea is picked up in the Psalms and in Hebrews. In Hebrews 3, verse 5, it says this. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. That was God talking to the Hebrews. Here, it was talking to the Israelites there, that very generation. They had rebelled and hardened their hearts. But the principle is the same. A hard heart is shown by ears, actually. A hard heart is shown by ears that don't listen to God, to his voice, to his word. And we know Pharaoh has a hard heart because he won't listen. But in the end, we're going to see the Israelites have exactly the same problem. But here, Egyptians do listen, and some do take their things inside. But Pharaoh, even though he sounds like someone with a soft heart in this passage, he sounds like he's listening, it sounds like he's repentant. In the end, his actions reveal that his words are hollow. And Moses knows it. Have a look at verse 30 of uh, chapter 9. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord. And Pharaoh shows it. Have a look at verses 34 and 35. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. He's spoken words of repentance in this passage, but saying the right words is not enough. Real listening leads to real obedience. Real repentance is more than just saying sorry, it's a real change of mind, which Pharaoh shows that he doesn't have. The next blow that we have is locusts. God tells Moses that these blows are going to be so great 
that it's something that we pass down from generation to generation. When warned, Pharaoh offers that only the men should go this time. So he says, yeah, you can go out the land, but just the men. But Moses again refuses. The women and children must come too. Pharaoh refuses, and the Lord sends a wind which brings the locusts who devastate the land. Pharaoh asks for forgiveness again, and the locusts are removed with another wind. But again, the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart, and he won't let them go. The last strike is darkness. God switches the lights off. It's back to Genesis 1 verse 1 before God made light. There's just darkness. And no amount of pleading to Ra, the sun god, or Horus, the sky god, embodied by Pharaoh, will make the sun come back. Darkness will be forever associated with God's judgment. Even as the sky turns black on Good Friday, this is where that starts. We think back to this event. Pharaoh offers the Israelites can go, but not with their cattle this time. Or Moses refuses and is driven from Pharaoh's presence. And there is a final ending to the three ways, if you have a look at chapter 10, verses 27 to 29. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me, take care, to to never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face you shall die. Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. Pharaoh has ignored the magicians when they told him something they didn't want to hear. They were driven from his presence at the end of wave two. And now Moses himself is driven from his presence. Pharaoh is left without any other voices but his own. That's where he's at now. Pharaoh is left with nothing else to hear. And his heart is hardened by the Lord. There's no turning back before the final judgment of the tenth plague, which we'll look at next week. So that is nine of the ten plagues. But why are they here? What are they there to teach us? So our final heading, three unpopular truths. They're there to teach us three unpopular truths. We can sum up what we see here by that title, three unpopular truths. The first one is that judgment is real. The idea that God does not judge or will not judge, I find quite baffling if you believe the Bible. Whilst it's true that judgment is God's strange work, as some people were seeing in life groups this week, in the sense that it's not that it's something that God has always done. So before sin came into the world, God did not judge. Sin is in the world, though. And this is what happens when a holy God meets sin, or rebellion, or law-breaking. So keen to avoid this idea down through the years, that heretics have even said that the God who acts here in the plagues is not the true God. But God, if you think about it in the passage, has made massive pains to show that he is the true God. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the great I am, the Lord. This is the God that's judging the Egyptians here, the true God. More common nowadays, though, is that we try and drive a wedge between the Old and New Testaments. So people seem to suggest that God has a personality transplant between Malachi and Matthew. You know, the Old Testament, well, that's all about judgment and and wrath. And the New Testament, well, God is all love and grace. That's just not the case. There's judgment in the New Testament. Revelation, if you read it, it puts up strongly on the plates, actually. You read about these things all the time. 
And actually, there is love and grace in the Old Testament too, as God keeps his people and saves them and rescues them and looks after them and forgives them. But a holy God plus sin equals judgment. Judgment is real and judgment day is coming, whether by our own passing or by Jesus returning. And these plagues, if you like, are just a picture of what is to come. The actual reality will be far worse. So judgment is real. That's the first unpopular truth. The second unpopular truth is that God makes a distinction. You'll notice all the way through the plagues that there are some who escape God's wrath and there are some who experience God's wrath. And it's not because the people who are uh, experiencing the wrath are uh, worse sinners, or it's not that the people who are not experiencing God's wrath aren't sinners. Actually, we see that both groups are sinners. As we said earlier, both groups in the end harden their hearts. So it's not that they're better than the Egyptians, they're not. Actually, they've already rejected Moses several times, and they'll go on to do so ten times uh, through the books ahead. And yet, God makes a distinction. The Egyptians are judged, and spoiler alert, the Israelites are rescued. But it has nothing to do with the worthiness of the Israelites. This is not goodies versus baddies. This is baddies versus baddies. And yet, God rescues some, and he judges others. Again and again, he makes a distinction. So what is it? Is God playing favourites? Is God being unfair? No. God is keeping his promises. His promises to Abraham to bless his descendants, to make them into a great nation, and to bring them into the promised land. God will be their God. He will keep that promise. And they will be his people. And God is making sure of that. And he will do whatever it takes, bar denying his own character, to do that. That's the second unpopular truth. God makes a distinction here. And then thirdly, God pardons Pharaoh's heart. God hardens the heart of Pharaoh. This is a really tough issue, isn't it? People in the New Testament raise the same sort of issues that we've just raised before about God being unfair. And Paul actually uses Pharaoh as an example. In Romans 9, 14 to 18, again you'll find out on the back of your notice sheets, this is how Paul looks at this incident with Pharaoh. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. What Paul tells us there is that he's using Pharaoh for his own purposes. And that involves hardening Pharaoh's heart. And not just Pharaoh. Actually, you read in chapter 10, verse 1, that his servants also have their hearts hardened as well. So what is God doing? Well, the word hard or hardening translates three words in Hebrew. One means to strengthen. One means to make difficult or stubborn. And the third one means to be heavy. None of these words imply a change of heart but an entrenchment, a sort of sticking of what's already there. Pharaoh, if you like, already has a heart of stone. 
He's already picked his path. God here just makes sure that he walks it. There's no violence done here to Pharaoh's will. He is doing exactly what he wants to do. God has just locked him into the path that he has chosen. And if you think about it, all the way through this, we see that Pharaoh does that to himself as well. Or it's ambiguous who's doing the hardening. It's like Pharaoh strapped himself into a roller coaster and he's enjoying it. He's doing what he wants. But once he's strapped in, there's no way he's getting off. He will see this through to the end. But if you think about it, the more troublesome bit really is mercy. Because that's not the case with mercy, is it? Mercy is when God kindly comes in and stops the roller coaster. Mercy is when God takes our hearts of stone and gives us new hearts. But he doesn't owe that to Pharaoh, does he? He doesn't owe that to anyone. And that's what makes mercy all the more incredible. More incredible than the miraculous plagues that we've been reading about. More confusing in a way than the hardening of hearts is the miracle of God's mercy. The Egyptians were owed judgment. But no one is owed mercy. And yet God gives it freely through Christ. In Christ we actually see the most incredible thing possible. Guilty sinners show mercy. Sinners welcomed into fellowship with God. That's incredible. How? Through Christ. Christ who hung on a cross in darkness, taking God's wrath. Through him and him alone, we can know mercy and forgiveness. And in the whole of creation, you're not going to find something more incredible than that. Whether you travel to the ends of the earth to Niagara Falls or the Northern Lights or scenes that make your eyes water. Wherever you go, you won't find something more incredible than the mercy of God. So let's pray that as we look to all this judgment, actually we would remember the mercy of God in this. He's rescuing his people. And actually that's the true amazing thing, that he would rescue people like us and take us to glory. Let's pray that God would let that sink in to our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we'll thank you that you're not indifferent to sin. Father, thank you that you are a God who judges the wrong things that we do, the way that we hurt people, the way that we mistreat people, the things that we do against you. But thank you more, Father, for your mercy that you show us in Christ. Father, thank you that as much as this is a picture of judgment on the Egyptians, Father, it's showing us what you will do to rescue your people. And Father, thank you that you sent your sons to the cross to do that, Father. That's how far you would go, Father, to rescue us. Help us to be thankful, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.